good morning, everyone. It's good to be back together again uh, with you. Uh, if you would, would you please open up your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 15, the Gospel of Mark, as we continue our study through Mark's Gospel. I was talking with uh, Will this week, a friend this week, and th we are now uh, in our 13th month uh, of the study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're moving toward uh, the last chapter, which we'll enter into today, uh, perhaps a few more studies in this book. Um, so again, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, and we'll pick up where we left off, which was uh, at verse 40 of that particular chapter. Now, while you're getting there, I'll remind you, during our last two studies, we were specifically looking at the crucifixion of Christ. And we're looking at all the various details that are provided by Mark and provided by the other gospel writers uh, leading up to and including Jesus's resurrection. Uh, those things that were occurring around him, some of the words that he had spoken. Uh, and in our study last Sunday, it ended with these words, or pretty much with these words in verse 37 of Mark, where he says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Now, Mark doesn't actually tell us what that last cry was, but we do know what those words actually were. Because, as we saw in our last study, uh, Luke tells us, and John tells us as well, what those last words were. Luke tells us that as part of that final cry, that Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then John tells us that Jesus declared, it is finished, and that he bowed his head, and that he gave up his spirit. And so thus, with the price of our redemption having been paid, Jesus yielded up his spirit, as Matthew 27 tells us, and he died. Now Mark continues on from there telling us about the impact that that yielding up of his spirit, that that death of Jesus had on those that were in the vicinity of the cross, particularly of that centurion, that Roman soldier, the, the sergeant, if you will, over a hundred other Roman soldiers that was there looking at the Lord, saw the way he died, heard the things that he said. And of course, we saw last week that his conclusion or his, his statement was truly, this man was the son of God. Well, Mark will continue in verse 40 and he'll say this. Now, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, these women followed him and they ministered to him. And they were also, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus's ministry was unique among the first century rabbis. And Jesus wasn't the only first century rabbi. Um, there were lots of rabbis uh, around the area of Jerusalem. Rabbi, the word means teacher. There were lots of teachers in Israel that would have disciples that would follow them. But Jesus's ministry was unique among those first century rabbis because right alongside of his male followers, Jesus had multiple and allowed for multiple female followers. There's an old expression that it's not used very much any longer, but an old expression, you've probably heard it, and it says that children are to be seen and not heard. And that was pretty much the way that Jesus's contemporary rabbis dealt with the women in their communities. They were to be seen and not heard. Jesus, however, approached ministry to women in a very different manner. 
And so Jesus allowed and he even invited women right into the midst of ministry. Women were invited to sit and to be taught along with everyone else. Women were commissioned to go out and to minister to the needs of others. And some women were Jesus's key financial supporters. And so rather than this idea of being seen but not heard, we're introduced to multiple women in the Gospels that were prominent. The, the phrase that is used is known among the disciples that were prominent, women that were prominent in Jesus's life and ministry. And we know many of their names. So we know the names of Mary Magdalene. We know Mary, the mother of James and Josie's. We know Salome, we know Joanna and Susanna, and later on in the book of Acts and, and some of the books that follow, we know names like Priscilla and Junia and Phoebe and multiple others. Now, it's not Mark's purpose to mention, in mentioning Mary, the two Marys that are there and so on, it's not his purpose to set out on some point about women's liberation with that statement. However, the observation that they are present does make a statement. And so you'll notice how matter-of-fact Mark is about their presence, both there in Jerusalem and even prior when he was ministering, Jesus was ministering in Galilee. So Mark says in 1541, he says he was in Galilee. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and they ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, that may not seem significant in the context of our culture, but it was very, very significant and revolutionary in Jesus's culture. Now, why does Mark bring it up? Again, I don't think his point was to make some kind of a statement, even though it does. So why bring it up? Why does Mark point out the fact that there's this small group of women that are present that were observing these proceedings? Well, that answer, it's going to be revealed as we come to chapter 16. But before we can get to that, Mark finishes chapter 15. He continues on in verse 42, and he says, Now when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage, and he went to Pilate, and he asked for the, the body of Jesus. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud, and he laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. Now, in one of our previous studies, <coughs> I pointed out how the crucifixion process typically took many hours to, to kill a person, if not even many days, until the, the person finally succumbed and died. As we saw in our last study together, Jesus was dead in about six hours, which was, as we see, surprising to Pilate. It causes Pilate um, to actually... Uh, be amazed or surprised, and then he reaches out to the centurion who was on char in charge there uh, at Golgotha, and he reaches out to that centurion to find out if indeed Jesus was dead. Mark fifteen forty four. 
Now, the catalyst for that interaction, the catalyst for Pilate asking to, to find out if Jesus really was dead, we see in verse 43 is that a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea request the body of the Lord for permission to take down the body of the Lord that he might bury that body. Now, that's an unusual request for a number of different reasons. Number one, it was not uncommon for the bodies of criminals to never be buried at all. Rather, they would simply be taken down and then they would be left for the vultures or the wild dogs or whatever it may be uh, to eat and to devour that body, much like we might see on the side of a road uh, when an animal has been struck by a vehicle. And so some have suggested that that's the actual reason why Golgotha was called Golgotha. Remember, Golgotha means the place of the skull. Some have suggested that the reason it got that name is because of all of these dead bodies that had littered that particular hill after they had been crucified. That may or may not be the case. But it was unusual to bury the body of these criminals. A second reason why jo Joseph's request is so unusual is because it comes from, as we see, Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea is a little village outside of Jerusalem. It comes from this guy, Joseph, notice, who was a respected member of the council. The council it's referring to is the Sanhedrin, the very people that voted to put Jesus uh, to death. Here's what we know about Joseph. We know that Joseph was a devout Jew. Luke chapter 23, verse 50, refers to him as a good and righteous man. That's how Luke describes him. Uh, we learn from John's gospel that not only was he a member of the Sanhedrin, but John tells us that he was also a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He was one of those many officials that believed on the Lord, but did so secretly for fear of the authorities and what they would think of him and how they would respond to him. You remember in John chapter 12, we read these words. We, we referenced it during our study of Mark, but these words in John 12 that say, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So Joseph, he found himself in the place, I think, that many of us find ourselves from time to time. And that is believing on the Lord, but having some reservations or perhaps being fearful of acknowledging that belief for fear of the impact that it will have on our lives or of our status in a community. But here is Joseph, who despite the ramifications can remain no longer. He can be a disciple of Je a secret disciple of Jesus no longer. And as a respected member of the Sanhedrin, he approaches, uh, a respected member of the Sanhedrin, he approaches Pilate and he asks for the body of the Lord. Now, Joseph was a wealthy, prominent individual. Uh, part of his wealth is the reason why he's on the Sanhedrin, and part of his prominence is because he is on the Sanhedrin. He's a wealthy, prominent individual. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And so for him to claim Jesus's body was to identify himself with the crucified criminal. The reasoning of the Sanhedrin and the Jews of the day is the, that the body should be abandoned as part of God's judgment on it. And so here is uh, Joseph rising up and saying, no, we don't want to leave this body out there. And he's identifying with the crucified criminal. That decision pretty much sealed the fate 
uh, his fate as a member of the Sanhedrin. It's almost certain they're going to remove him um, from his position of authority there and all the perks that go with that position of authority. And he is almost certainly, very likely, going to be removed or excommunicated, we might use that term, from the local Jewish religious community, the local synagogue that he was a part of. Because the authorities, as we said in John 12, 42, they had already determined that whoever follows this Jesus would be put out of the synagogue. And so this is a very, very big decision for Joseph. And I'm sure there are many that would have thought that this would have been a foolish decision on his part. Because uh, let's look at the facts. Jesus was already dead. The dream of him being the Messiah uh, was over. And so why bother taking the risk and identifying himself as a follower of the Lord when it, for all practical purposes there was no longer a Lord to even follow? But irrespective of those reasons, Joseph determines to act. And as John's gospel will go on to tell us, he's joined by another secret disciple of the Lord, another fellow member of the Sanhedrin, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. John 19 says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, we read about that uh, in the beginning of John's gospel, it says, those two men came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And those two men, they threw caution to the wind, so to speak, asked for the body of the Lord, went and took down the body of the Lord, and they began to prepare it for burial. And it seems here that Joseph's courage prompts Nicodemus to take courage. And I can't help but think about how important it is for us as Christians to walk our Christian walk with others so that they may be an encouragement to us, and so that we might be an encouragement to them. We see here Joseph encouraging Nicodemus, and no doubt Nicodemus coming alongside of him continued to encourage Joseph in his decision. Well, prior to the events of the cross, Joseph was a secret disciple. But seeing Jesus on the cross and the way that he did, it caused such a courage and passion to flood Joseph's heart that he's willing to identify with the Lord despite whatever ramifications may come. And so while he was apparently silent when the Sanhedrin sentenced Jesus to death, he would not be silent any longer as he publicly identifies with Christ in that death. Joseph and Nicodemus, they make the decision and they are all in with Jesus the Christ. So we learned earlier that Jesus yielded up his spirit, and we know that that took place around the ninth hour. We know that the ninth hour is roughly around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. At 6 p.m., Sabbath law would take effect, where none of the Jews, um, especially in Jerusalem, were allowed to do any work. Uh, so no work could be done. So Joseph, therefore, is going to have to work pretty quickly from the 3 o'clock hour to the 6 o'clock hour to secure the body of Jesus to remove the body of Jesus from the cross, quickly prepare the body of Jesus before the Sabbath codes take effect, uh, and then to uh, put him away into a tomb of some sorts. He's going to have to work very quickly to do so. And so we already saw in verses 44 and 45 that he secured the body of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for permission to take the body. Next, we're going to see him and Nicodemus 
removing that body from the cross, verse 46 tells us that, and then wrapping that body in a linen shroud or a linen cloth that Joseph had purchased for that particular purpose. That's also in verse 46. And then finally, at the conclusion of the verse, placing that body in a nearby tomb, you'll see there that had been cut out of the rock. Matthew points out to us in his gospel that that nearby tomb actually was Joseph's tomb. It was his family's tomb, and the decision was made to place the body of Jesus in that tomb. Now, let, let me make this point. The, a tomb over there, we oftentimes in the United States, we bury folks into the ground. Um, not so there, uh, particularly for those that were wealthy. Those that were wealthy, uh, they would actually dig into the rock, um, you know, a, a little mountain of sorts. They would dig into it and they would create a room, a cave, if you want to think of it that way, inside of that rock. That's what's being spoken of in this particular instance. And so Joseph had done that. He had carved into the stone or cut into the stone a tomb for he and his family. Um, never got a chance to use it before Jesus did. Jesus was the first body that was laid there. Um, what's interesting for us is once more, 700 years earlier, God revealed to the prophet Isaiah that this would actually take place. Um, we recall, we looked at it in Isaiah's prophecy, that there were aspects and details of the death of Christ that had been revealed to Isaiah. And this time, uh, we see fulfilled Isaiah 53, 9, it says, They made his grave with the wicked. That means he died alongside of two other criminals. Uh, and with a rich man in his death. That means he's buried there in uh, the tomb of a rich man. The rich man being Joseph of Arimathea. Crucified alongside the wicked, buried alongside the rich. Well, you can imagine that sundown is quickly approaching. Again, it commences the start of the Sabbath where no work would be able to be done. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, they're going to have to work quickly to prepare the body of the Lord. And a more thorough preparation of Jesus's body for burial, it would take place after the Sabbath was continued. But for now, they're going to quickly prepare his body. They're going to wrap it in this linen cloth. They're going to um, provide some spices and aloes for it so that when they return back, there'll be the more pleasant smell of those spices as opposed to the decomposing body. And they, they lay Jesus's body in uh, Joseph's borrowed tomb. Mark continues in verse 47. He says, now Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Josie, saw where he was laid. Now, it seems that these two Marys, that they followed Nicodemus and Joseph as they took the body from the cross about a hundred feet or so away to the place where they laid Jesus's body. Verse 42 tells us they're there at the cross. Now, verse 47 tells us they're observing the entombment of the Lord. And I can't help but think what must have been their thoughts and the attitude and the things that were going on inside of their hearts. As they behold now this lifeless body of Christ, the one that they were convinced was the Messiah that was sent from heaven, and they see his broken body being carted from the cross to, and laid in this particular tomb. Of course, they and the two men that were there, they must have been devastated. 
I think there was probably a bit of shell shock with all of the events of the last 12 hours or so and how quickly everything just seemed to spiral out of control. I have to imagine that their hearts must have ached, even uh, as their minds must have wondered, what has gone, what happened? How did we get to this particular place? How did all of these things come about as they did? Well, Mark closes out chapter 15. He points out that the women observed where the body of Jesus was laid. It becomes evident in the next chapter that their thought is to come back to the tomb as soon as the Sabbath is over so that they can properly embalm the body which had been hastily placed in the tomb. Which brings us to verse 1, picking up in verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, mother of, the mother of James and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. Now, Luke points out what we can deduce from reading Mark's gospel. Luke points out in chapter 23 that on the Sabbath, they rested according to the command. But as Mark picks up, as soon as the Sabbath was passed, these three women, they make their way to the tomb so that they can fully prepare the body of the Lord for burial. The, the word that is used at the end of verse one is that they could anoint him. Now, technically, the end of the Sabbath would have been 6 p.m. of the evening prior, Saturday night at 6 p.m. But there would not have been enough light to do what it is that they needed to do to prepare Jesus' body, especially inside of this cave. And so they're going to come first thing Sunday morning. Mark points that out in verse 2. He says, very early on the first day of the week. Luke says... And he refers to it as early dawn, which means before the sun actually was fully up. And so daylight is starting to form. And these women, they meet together wherever it is that they were staying. And they begin to make their way to the place where Jesus' body was laid. As soon as they are able, they come to perform one final act of kindness for the one who had been so kind and so loving to both them and to so many others. And I have to imagine that they're hoping in doing so by they're hoping that in providing a proper burial for Jesus, that they're going to restore some level of dignity to their Lord. Who had all of his dignity taken away through the various trials that he underwent and his scourging and his crucifixion and the mockings and so on and so forth. And so you'll notice again that they come to anoint the body of Jesus. Now they're coming to anoint a dead body, Mark 16, 1, that they might go and they might anoint him, anoint him. They're not coming to see if Jesus has risen again as he told him he would. You remember back in Matthew 16, and we looked at this in our study of Mark, but you remember back in Matthew 16, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and be raised again on the third day. They're not coming to this tomb to sit outside of it to see if those words will come true. They're coming to anoint a dead body. There's no indication in Mark's gospel or in the other gospels that they have any expectation that Jesus is going to rise from the dead and that they're going there to witness his resurrection from the dead. It's more likely that the concept of his resurrection had either slipped their mind, if it ever really entered in there and took up residence, or that they gave up all such hope because of his seeming defeat at the hands of the Jewish and the Roman officials. Now, some might say, well, maybe the women had no knowledge of Jesus's claim regarding the resurrection. That's highly unlikely because even Jesus's enemies were, were aware of his claims that he would rise again on the third day. We read in Matthew's gospel that after Jesus's death, officials went to Pilate and it says this, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered together to Pilate saying, sir, we remember that while he was still alive, this deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. I find it highly unlikely that these folks were aware of something that some of Jesus's closest disciples were not aware of. Rather, I think these ladies here, I think that they're similar to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, that had, were, were able to articulate these words, the attitude of the heart, when they said, we had hoped he was the Messiah. They had given up hope. Jesus had been defeated. And so they're coming there, they're making their way to the tomb to anoint the, a dead body, not to see a resurrected one. And Mark points out in verse 3 that as they're making their way there, the thought strikes them uh, of, as to how they're going to get into the tomb. And so you'll notice they say, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now that large stone essentially served as the door of the tomb. It's almost certainly referring to a large millstone that would be fitted into sort of a groove that was carved into the ground outside of the, uh, of the tomb, the little mausoleum there of sorts. And the way you might picture it is, if you think of a, of a curb, there, there was a curb, then a little gully, and then the, the uh, mountain as a whole, or the rock as a whole, that this tomb was dug into. And in that little gully there would be a large millstone. It would be anywhere from four to five feet high, two to three feet wide, or something like that. And the purpose of the gully was, would be to allow the stone to be rolled in front of the door, and away from the door. Now, I think that um, sort of precipitates that. I, I explain a little bit here about the burial practices of first century, of the first century Jews, particularly the wealthy Jews of that day. In that day, a wealthy individual or family would create for their family a burial spot. That's what Joseph was doing when he had carved into the rock this um, this place of burial. And so a wealthy family would do that. They would have a burial plot for the family. And that tomb, again, I would liken it to a mausoleum today, it would often have a couple of different rooms. One, that the family would sort of enter into and maybe sit there for a moment or so or a few moments or so um, for them. 
so that's sort of for the loved ones of the, the person that had been departed. And then there would be a second room, if you think of it that way, that would have what we might call a bed, a flat table almost, or a bed that would be carved into the stone. And that's where the deceased person's body would be laid. In that little room, there would additionally be sort of shelving that would be carved into the walls as well. And on that shell, on those shelves, would be placed multiple ossuaries um, as time would go on. Now, you may not know what an ossuary is. An ossuary is a small box. It's not a, it's not a, um, a coffin. It's a small box uh, that would contain the bones of a dead person. And so the process was like this. Uh, a person would be laid in a family tomb on that bed that I previously mentioned to you. And then one year to the day of death later, the family would return to that tomb, roll away the stone, and they would go to into that little room where that body had been laid a year prior. By now, the, the skin and all that stuff had decomposed from that particular body. And what they would do is they would collect the bones of that individual, place them into this smaller box, again called an ossuary, and then put that box up onto one of those shelves that I had mentioned to you. And it would free up, if you will, that, that bed, that table, for another family member that would die um, in the coming years or, or what it may be. And so in a family tomb would be multiple ossuaries of those that had died in the years gone by. And so that's what is, is essentially going to be happening here, that, or that's what people are expecting to happen here. They're going to put Jesus's body in that particular place. They're going to prepare his body for burial. They'll either move it to another location um, when they have more time, or Joseph will decide Jesus can stay in this particular location um, because of the honor of, of who Jesus was and so on and so forth. And so there's this great stone, Matthew 27 refers to it as such, this great stone. The American Standard Version calls it uh, an exceeding great stone, this huge stone. We don't know. I suggested it was four to five feet tall, two to three feet wide. We don't know how, how big this stone actually was, but we do know it was large enough for the women to conclude that they'd never be able to remove that particular stone, which forces them again in verse three to ask that question you know, how are we going to move the stone when we get there? Who's going to roll the stone away from us or for us when we get there? And so again, notice no expectation that the stone would have already been removed and that Jesus would no longer be in the grave. These women aren't expecting to find an open tomb, an empty tomb, certainly not. They're trying to figure out a way to get in so that they can prepare the body of Jesus's, Jesus's body that is inside. Now to their delight, notice verse 4 they sort of turn this corner, they look up, and they find that the stone had already been rolled back. Mark tells us that in verse 4. Matthew explains for us in his gospel that it is an angel of the Lord that rolls back the stone. And Matthew also tells us that it was accompanied by a great earthquake. Here's how Matthew says it. He says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and he came and he rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, 
and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And so these women had their doubts as to how they would get into to the grave there, into the tomb. Uh, so there were these doubts sort of within them that they were talking about amongst themselves. But you'll see, though, through this angel, God solved their problem. And that speaks to me a little bit about this way in which many times we are tempted to allow perceived obstacles to kind of stop us from stepping out and doing what it is we believe the Lord is leading us to do or he's calling us to do, only to find that when we do step out sort of in faith, even though we don't have all the answers, that God sort of solves our problem for us before we even get there. In this case, how are we going to get the, the stone moved? The angel has already removed the stone even before they get there. Now, we know that the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. It wasn't as if the angel opened the door so that Jesus could get out. Because we learn in other places in the scripture that Jesus could pass through stones, he could pass through walls, he could pass through locked doors, uh, and none of those things served as a hindrance to Jesus in his resurrection body. John chapter 20 tells us on the evening of the first day of the week, on Sunday evening, the day that Jesus was resurrected, it says the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. He passed right through the door, right through the walls. And so uh, material barriers were not a barrier for the Lord in his resurrection body. So the stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that these women and others, we'll see, could actually get in, so that they could see into the tomb, so that they could be persuaded that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. Again, the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let these women in, that they might see the reality of the resurrection. Verse 5 says, the women enter the tomb. They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Matthew's gospel explains to us that this young man is actually a human form of this angel who had rolled back the stone. I'm going to read to you. Matthew 28 says, behold, there was a great earthquake. I read that earlier. The Lord descended from heaven. He came and he rolled back the stone and sat on it. Verse uh, 5 picks up and it says, But the angel said to the woman, uh, women, do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. And so Mark describes him as this young man. We know indeed it was an angel that took on that particular form. And we learned that that same angel that rolled the stone away freaked out the soldiers that were placed there to prevent the stone from being rolled away. Matthew tells us that for fear of this angel, the guards trembled and they became like dead men. Yet that same angel now addresses the women with words of comfort and he gives to them a command to go and tell others. And so in verse six of Mark's gospel, he, put, he picks up and he said to them, the angel said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. The angel invites them to examine the evidence, the empty tomb, and then to go and tell others, as we read in the book of Acts, 
of all of those things that they had seen and those things that they had heard. He calls them to go and to be a witness. Come examine the evidence and then go and be a witness. You'll notice in speaking to these women that the angel paints a contrast between that which was and that which now is. Again, he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he is now risen. He is not here, he will go on to say. Jesus was crucified, and there's no doubt about the fact that he was and that he died as a result of that crucifixion. So to say that Jesus was crucified, that means that he was dead. And that death was confirmed by the centurion, as we already saw elsewhere. And so people will ask the question, did Jesus really die on the cross? And there are some that suggest that Jesus really didn't die on the cross, but that rather he sort of passed out and that people thought that he had died. This is called the swoon theory. And the idea of the swoon theory goes that Jesus passed out. The authorities thought that he died. They buried him. Jesus sort of came, uh, came to. He, he woke up, if you will, rolled the stone away himself from the inside in his weakened, beaten, and bloodied body. And then he went all around Israel appearing to people and pretending that he had actually rose from the dead. Well, we can be sure of this. Jesus did indeed die. The centurion, you recall, confirmed to Pilate that that was the case. And as a centurion, he would have seen far too many deaths for there to be any uncertainty about the fact that Jesus had died. Additionally, because it was the Passover and because there was a desire on the part of the Jews uh, to have the bodies of these three victims removed before the Passover actually began and before Sabbath actually began, Instructions were then given to go and break the legs of Jesus and the other two men that were crucified with Jesus so that they would die more quickly. John's gospel points that out to us in chapter 19. Now, of course, as you may be aware, when they came to Jesus to break his legs, they discovered, as it says, that he was already dead. And so instead then of breaking his legs, they decide to pierce his side. That is where his heart would have been just to make sure that Jesus was dead. And so again, out of complete control of the Lord's hands, he's now dead, out of complete control of his hands, we have two more fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. One, which predicted that not one of his bones would be broken, that's Psalm 34, verse 20, and then a second, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, which is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. And John points out to us in his gospel, John 19, that those two fulfillments of prophecies occurred even in this decision by these Roman leaders to see if Jesus really was or was not dead. Jesus had died. He was crucified. But the angel will go on to say, but he is now risen. Now we know that there are several examples in the scriptures, in the Bible, of people being raised back to life before this instance. Resurrected, if you will. And so in the days of Elijah, a widow's son was raised back to life through the prayer of Elijah. We've seen multiple occasions in the Gospels where people were raised back to life. The most well-known of those occasions, no doubt, being the occasion of Lazarus, Lazarus, who in John chapter 11 was raised back to life after having been in the grave for four days. Their resurrections, however, might be 
more properly described as a resuscitation because each one of them was raised to life in the same body that they had died in and raised from the dead to eventually die again in that particular body. Jesus, however, was raised in a new body, which we've already seen his ability to pass through walls, for instance, that's different than what he was previously. So he was raised in a new body, similar to his old body, but new and distinct, as our study of the Gospels will continue to reveal. And so Jesus was not the first one brought back from the dead, but he was the first one to return in a new and a resurrected form. And that is perhaps the most important reality of the Christian faith. And so as we think about the Christian faith, we talk a lot about Jesus dying for our sins. And sometimes I think we speak in, we speak in such a way that what really matters is Jesus' death. The reality is without the resurrection, there would be actually no proof that his death actually accomplished anything. And so it's vital for us as Christians to consider the significance of an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem, to consider the significance of the empty tomb of Jesus and just what his resurrection means for us as followers of Jesus. And so Paul will tell us in his letter to the Romans that Jesus, here's his words, was declared to be the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Now notice, not that he became the Son of God when he was resurrected, but that he was proclaimed or preached to be the Son of God with power. The idea being, here's the proof of who he is. Not only that, Paul would write in another place that because of Jesus' resurrection, those of us that believe are assured that we too will be resurrected. And so Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, which is a fancy way or a nice way of saying those that have died. And so the idea there being because he rose again, we will rise again. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that because of Jesus's resurrection, he is able to ever continuing, continue ministering as he makes intercession to his father on our behalf. Hebrews 7.24 says he holds a priesthood forever because he continues forever. He, he who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Returning once more to the Apostle Paul, we learn that it is because of his resurrection that those of us that believe are justified. Paul says that he was raised for our justification, Romans 4, verse 24 and 25. Justification, you can remember its meaning this way, just as if you never sinned, justification, is perhaps one of the most important doctrines of the faith. And Paul says it is because of Jesus' resurrection that we are able to experience justification. It's because of his, that his death has met every claim of, of the justice of God against us. Therefore, his resurrection is the divine declaration of our justification from all of those claims. The resurrection of Jesus Christ sets Christianity and Christianity's God apart from every other world religion or philosophical underpinning. 
And it sets the Christian faith as unique and completely different from all other moral worldviews. Jesus is not some so-called holy man among many other so-called holy men. What the resurrection proves, and it, it does prove, that though it looked like Jesus died on the cross as a common criminal, he actually died on the cross as a sinless man who in love and in self-sacrifice bore the guilt of our sin. The death of Jesus on the cross was the payment, but the resurrection is the receipt, giving evidence of the payment. And it shows that the payment was received perfectly in the sight of God the Father. And so without the resurrection, we would never actually know if Jesus' work on our behalf was accepted. Now, not only those things, which are significant in and of themselves, but not only that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it provides us as Christians with the ability to live in Christ. We as Christians, we do not follow a dead Savior. We follow a living Savior. And because Jesus lives, he has given us his Holy Spirit that he might dwell within us. And so we not only know what it is that God would have us to do, but we have dwelling in a, within us the Holy Spirit who empowers us to actually do those particular things. And that's why the resurrection is essential. So we might think uh, and be tempted to think that the death of Christ is essential to the faith, but not so much the resurrection. The Bible teaches something very, very different. There's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. And that empty tomb is essential to the Christian faith and, more importantly, our daily walk with the Lord Jesus. And so we'll continue to uh, dig into what Mark has to share about the resurrection and Jesus' appearances as we go a little bit further. But my prayer for us at this time as we consider these passages, and again, we come back to this every Easter. We're talking about the resurrection and these things. My prayer is that God would use his word today to strengthen and encourage us in our walk this week. May the Lord bless you. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that this week uh, we would be reminded afresh of the resurrection power that is ours uh, in Christ Jesus, and that because he lives, we also shall live and do live, that because he lives, we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit, whom he gave unto us, to have power to walk in that spirit, and to obey and to do those things that you would have us to do and to lead us as we seek to follow you. And so, Lord, may the, may the power of the resurrection be each of ours in a fresh way this week. And may you use your word to accomplish that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for being with us uh, here this morning. We're going to close out our time with a song of worship. And, and I want to encourage you, if you're viewing this and you're watching and, and you would like us to be praying for you or you want to connect with us in some way, you can drop a comment uh, below on whatever platform it is you are watching, or you can just reach out to us here at the church. We want to be of help to you. We want to support you in your walk with the Lord in whatever way that may define itself. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us. May God bless you and thank you again for being here.